the day is surely drawing near when Jesus, God's anointed, in all his power shall appear as judge whom God appointed. Then fright shall banish idle mirth, and flames on flames shall ravage earth, as scripture long has warned us. Well, good morning to you too. And then to hear from God's word, of course, which so many of our hymns are such a wonderful representation of, even if at times it seems to be bad news, Jesus says this, There will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. This is the word of the Lord. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus. All of you gathered here, bright sunshine, and a special welcome to those who may be joining us through our uh, media ministry. These last couple of Sundays of the church year, you did realize we were drawing to the end of a church year, right? In case not, that's okay. The new church year begins with the celebration of Advent and the preparation for Christmas, which is just a couple weeks away. Somebody could give us the shopping days, but not now. But we focus these last couple of Sundays of our church year on the end times and what Jesus and Scripture tell us about what is to come before time ends and God judges the world. And it's not always something that we relish. I mean, who wants to hear about gloom and doom and, and, and people falling away and, and people dying and, and terrible signs amongst people and, and amongst nature. It's not something we typically embrace. And yet, just like every bit of God's word, there is application that we can make that can benefit us as God would have it. And so as we look at Luke chapter 21, and if you're the kind that likes to have the scriptures, we will be referring to it. Uh, so Luke chapter 21 will be where we talk about what Jesus predicted. Both predictions that were from short term, so to speak, and for centuries. And I think what makes it kind of challenging at times for us as we read scripture is that that in his teaching to the disciples, it seems that, at least from my perspective, he seems to intertwine prophecies about the near future and prophecies that could last for thousands of years. And sometimes it's hard to distinguish between when and what is he talking about. In fact, that's where our text begins. The disciples talking about the temple and Jesus predicting that the temple would be destroyed. So because this is based in history and not just some um, made-up place or time, I think it's good for us just to be reminded a little bit about what Jerusalem, where Jesus spent so much time, especially towards the end of his ministry, in. In his day, this is an illustration of what Jerusalem may have looked like. 
And you'll notice that here or in this um, model that's been created of Jesus' day, one of the things that you'll notice is the, the temple mount, this large, huge wall-enclosed uh, section, and then on top of that, the temple. And the temple in Jesus' day was the one that had been rebuilt, so to speak, by Herod the Great. He came to power uh, about 40, 50 years before Jesus was born. And one of the things he did was to rebuild Solomon's temple from a thousand years previous and restore it to glory. And so he did it even as the scriptures had laid out with all of the gold and the fancy work and, and all of the fine metal work and woodwork and tapestry and all of that. It apparently was just an absolutely splendid facility. But the temple itself wasn't all that large. But its temple courts, the surrounding areas where they would uh, gather for worship and so forth, was quite extensive. And the temple was originally built on the top of a hill or a mount. And to make that area flat and expansive, Herod enlarged that temple mount, that, that flat space at the top. And to do so, he had to erect large retaining walls, so to speak. Large walls that would hold the earth so that on top you had about 35 acres of flat space for the temple and all of the other things that were up there. You can kind of see some of those temple mount walls today. And so you have um, in, our, uh, in our images we see Let's see, I got way ahead of myself here. Imagine that. So, so there's what is called the Western Wall, or sometimes known as the uh, Western Wailing Wall. And the reason that that's so significant is, uh, especially for, for Jewish people and their religion, is because it is the, mo the of those Temple Mount Walls, that western wall was not completely destroyed. And so it is the closest thing that the Jewish people have to where the temple once stood. And that's why it is so special, why people gather there, why people will come to pray, where they will come and then they will put little pieces of paper, prayer requests, names, so to speak, into the cracks in the walls you'll notice that the different stones that were put together, how close they are thousands of years ago, 2,000 plus, and yet they were able to place and the, uh, the uh, architecture and the construction is absolutely amazing. And there we can see some of the, pic the, uh, the slips. And so here is what is considered to be perhaps one of the largest stones as part of that western wall. The size of that stone is bigger than anything that was used in the pyramids. And um, it's estimated that that stone is some 45 feet long by, oh, 12 to 14 feet tall by 10 to 12 feet deep. That's a big stone. And they moved it into place and the wall that was built and that was part of the wall. So when Jesus says there will be a day when the stones are thrown down one from another, yes, the temple was destroyed, but in addition, the temple mount 
that large structure of retaining wall was also destroyed by the Romans. Now, a little bit of history there. Because you see, as Rome was in charge of the world at that time, so Jerusalem was under Roman rule. But not everybody liked that. Not everybody was in favor of having the Romans be in charge. And so there was a group of people, one of which was known as the Zealots. Even in Jesus' day, you might recall that some of his disciples were called like Simon the Zealot and so forth. A political party, so to speak. But in about 66 AD, some 35 years after Jesus' time, they rose up in a rebellion against Rome, drove out whatever Roman presence was there because it wasn't very much, and then wanted to establish their independence. When a large power gets poked, just like poking a sleeping bear or whatever, he usually doesn't like that. And so the Emperor Nero said, that's enough of that. He sent the General Vespasian to go and overthrow that rebellion in Jerusalem. So he took his legions of Roman soldiers, and they came and conquered. Now, when Rome would conquer, as was the case with many powers, there was a few ways that they would um, overtake a city or a country. One would be their preferred way, by mutual agreement of a surrender. Simply demonstrating what they had done to other cities or people, how they wiped them out and killed them, they would simply come to a country or a city and say, um, if you don't want to end up like those people, just surrender. And there would be many people that would do that. We surrender. You can have, just don't kill us. You can take control of our city, our space, and you can run our lives. But please spare our lives Jerusalem wasn't going to do that. If a city resisted, then Rome might do a direct assault and just simply overrun the city and conquer it. But Jerusalem was too well defended. Jerusalem was built in a strategic location with all sorts of walls, not just the Temple Mount, but walls around the whole city. Very challenging to attack. And so when that would happen, the Romans had yet another strategy for conquering. And that is, they would lay siege to a city. And what that means is they would simply surround it and cut the city off. Now, some of you who might like military strategy or things like that might appreciate these next couple of slides because it's an attempt to show how the Roman armies surrounded the city of Jerusalem when they sieged it. And the siege was something that did not happen quickly. It was over the course of months and months. And what they would do is obviously cut off supplies so that no fresh food and all of the other things that a population would need would be able to get in. Trying to starve them out, so to speak. And if they didn't surrender after some time, then they would build up siege works, build up mounds of dirt so that the uh, height advantage would no longer be in the benefit of the defending city but that the enemies on the outside would be able to be equal to the walls that were there. And eventually they would build up and breach the walls and the gates and overtake the city and not treat the people very well. The Jewish slash Roman historian Flavius Josephus 
writes about this uh, siege of Jerusalem, and he tries to describe how awful it was for those who were in. And the most conservative estimates of loss of life were somewhere in the neighborhood of 300 to 350,000 people who died. The temple was burned, was razed to the ground, and even those great walls of the Temple Mount were destroyed. One stone pushed down upon another. Now, it's been rebuilt, and uh, that's what we see today. But there you have Jesus' words. Some 40 years after his time came true. Not one stone would be left upon another when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies and all of this hardship. That's when he said, I pray that it's not going to be in winter. I pray that those who are, are pregnant or who have nursing children, that it doesn't happen during that time because these events will be awful. Get out of the city. Don't go into it, he says. And he gives those kinds of warnings. Now, if that is how, able, how Jesus gives warning to the people, even of his day, then we certainly take heed to his warnings that are now predictive of what would happen in the next hundreds and even thousands of years, even to our time today. Because you see, Jesus' words predict that not only Jerusalem would be surrounded and put under siege, God's people of all times would be put under siege. That God's followers are going to constantly be attacked and tried to be conquered by the enemy. Not the Roman army, but the old satanic foe who means deadly woe. That's the one who is constantly looking to attack God's people, even God's church. And just like the Roman army, I think you can see some similarities in how he functions. You see, the devil would like nothing better than for God's people who come to faith, who believe in him, who gathered, to simply give up. Isn't the devil doing a great job these days of trying to make an example of other Christians like the Romans did of other countries and cities? Aren't Christians ridiculed and belittled? Aren't their businesses protested and so forth? Aren't those who speak for what is considered basic Christian conservative values, aren't they run out of town and their political careers come to an end or their Hollywood abilities are no longer somehow needed in any of the films and so forth? That doesn't happen by accident. That's part of what the devil's strategy is to get people who would put their trust in Jesus to say, look what happens when you believe in Christ. Do you want this to happen to you? Unfortunately, there are many, and perhaps there are many times individually where we simply do that. We simply surrender. 
Okay, okay, just, just don't make fun of me. Don't make my faith cost me anything. You, you can run things, but, but please just don't make me have to stand up for my faith and, and be ridiculed or persecuted or stand out or, or have somebody say some mean things about me or think something bad about me. How often haven't we given up ground given up part of the faith that Christ has given to us. What we saw Marilyn get established in her through that wonderful gift of baptism. And yet we surrender. But thanks be to God that that by his grace we don't surrender our whole lives. Certainly none of us would say we've surrendered to the devil, would we? We would say, no, we're ready to fight. And that's what Jesus prepares us for, so that we fight, so that we can resist what he's doing, that we can build that wall of the shield of faith and take on the devil's attacks. But like the Romans, the devil simply says, yeah, 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 we got time. Just give it time. And so he lays siege in a very passive way. I think of our young people especially. I think of those who come through our eighth grades at St. Lawrence, or perhaps those who attend our confirmation classes on Sunday morning, and they come to the end of their eighth grade year and confirmation, and they make their bold confessions. And it's a wonderful experience. And there they say how they are going to follow Christ even to the point of death, and even if they suffer loss because of him. But how quickly is that faith sometimes attacked and eroded? How quickly is it that that young people like that almost are, are cut off, either voluntarily or because of circumstances beyond their control, and no longer receive the life-giving resources that are need to be in worship, to be in the Word, to be in prayer, to be and receive communion, and so forth. How often is it that it seems as if when we say congratulations on confirmation, it's almost like saying goodbye? And besides us as parents who who have those children, what else are we doing as a congregation? Isn't it wonderful when we see the young people who are so vital in our church to be here and, and active and participating. And what encouragement can we give so that they are not cut off? But how often don't we do some of the th- same things ourselves? In other words, how often don't we voluntarily cut ourselves off from the life-giving resources that God gives us? Oh yes, we, we come to church and, and thanks be to God for those times that we do and we are in the Bible and in prayer and in acts of service. But for every time that that happens, how many times and opportunities are missed? How many weekends a month are not taken advantage of? It's as if we're allowing the devil to lay siege and cut off supply, except we're doing it to ourselves. And soon, our faith begins to suffer. It may take time, but the devil doesn't really care. He just lays siege. Just give it time. Pretty soon, they won't receive any reinforcements, and the faith will be gone. 
This is why Jesus gives us these words of warning. This is why Jesus says this is real people. This is not something that's for the, for the future. This happens within our lives on a daily basis. Repent and commit your way to the Lord. Turn to the one who not only predicts judgment, but who also promises grace. For you see, he has empowered his church, his people, to be able to have what is needed for the battle that rages. We hear in Scripture that as Christians, that you also, as living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. See, that's what it means to have faith. It's not just an individual thing. It means we have been taken and placed within a community. Like another wall, another stone in the wall, perfectly slotted, perfectly put in there, in just the right place, so that the Christian church can stand. The Christian church can prevail, so that even the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. And here you have a little cartoon-like uh, image of what that can look like, of how God's people interlocking. And what a wonderful opportunity to cement those relationships, to come closer together, even when it's people that we don't even know personally, but to think that we are all one. And together we are able to be the body of Christ, the wall, the spiritual house that is God's temple. And so we look for those opportunities. We take advantage of those opportunities. And we constantly pray God's Holy Spirit to bless our fellowship. But ultimately, the only reason we can stand is because of the foundation. Because of the cornerstone that is Jesus Christ. It is He into whom we are built it is he into whom we have been given forgiveness, grace, salvation. And it is only because of him that we have forgiveness for our sins. For when we've given up and given ground to the devil, for when we've cut ourselves off from when we've not lived as God calls us to. Our reading from Thessalonians says, do not grow weary in doing good. Jesus renews us so that we don't grow weary. And that's what his grace is all about. May we ever stand together and be joined in to Christ. In his name, amen. And now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.